welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. Uh, in this episode of Russian Roulette, I talk with Erica Marat, who is an associate professor at the College of International Security Affairs at the National Defense University here in Washington. Uh, her book, The Politics of Police Reform, uh, explores the transformation of law enforcement agencies in former Soviet countries. Uh, we're going to talk about the political upheaval in Kyrgyzstan uh, and uh, police reform and what it means for political developments in Kyrgyzstan, in Central Asia, and beyond. Let's get started. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. I'm joined today by Erica Marat uh, from National Defense University. Erica, welcome. Hi. So uh, it's been a fairly dramatic couple of weeks in uh, Kyrgyzstan. Um, we've had a, a clash between a current and a former president, uh, some pretty large-scale violence, former president uh, now being taken into custody. Um, what caused the this upheaval and, and why now? I think the easiest way to describe this is um, a power-sharing competition between two leaders, uh, one former president, obviously, and one current president. So current president, Jim Bekov, was um, elected president largely thanks to Atambayev. But the two men had disagreements last year, and Jim Bekov uh, started prosecuting some of Atambayev's former top officials, interior minister, prime minister, um, prosecutor general, and finally now Atambayev. But Atambayev um, always thought of himself as the central political figure in Kyrgyzstan um, who needs to be, um, uh, whose voice needs to be taken into account. So he always said that he will resist any attempts to be arrested. And here we go, uh, after Atambayev uh, refused to show up in court three times, uh, GKNB, so National Security Committee, decided to um, storm his luxury residence and arrest him. Right, live on camera. Um, So is this just a power struggle between two headstrong leaders, or is there an underlying set of political or economic issues here? So here's the thing. there are obviously some credible allegations of Atambayev and his uh, former supporters being involved in large-scale corruption, um, and media reported about that widely. But also, Jean Bekov, like previous uh, presidents and like pretty much anywhere in post-Soviet space, has a very loyal judiciary, and his own government is not immune to corruption. So, so the judiciary though, is loyal to him, even though a lot of them were put in place under Atambayev. Yes, the judiciary, because of its nature, because of this inertia from the Soviet regime, when uh, judiciary is made to support political um, regime, is loyal to whoever is the incumbent. And Atambayev, unfortunately, missed the chance to reform that. So now he's the victim of uh, his own mistakes. Okay. So what do you think the the most likely outcome is now? I mean, is this now that Atambayev is is in custody and presumably will be will be tried, is this the end of the story or are we going to see more sort of upheaval? <laughs> so it is 
a legalistic mess right now in Kyrgyzstan because some lawyers are questioning was Jim Bekov and his government and the National Security Committee in particular, the elite forces, were they acting within the law by storming the residence? And also, if that's illegal, let, let's assume if that's, that storm was illegal, what kind of charges do we bring against Satambayev and his supporters who were armed and who allegedly, uh, by resisting arrest, injured and killed uh, killed at least one member of elite forces and injured many, many more. So we'll see how it goes. But it's important to remember that most predominantly, um, almost all, let me put it this way, almost all criminal charges usually result in jail time in Kyrgyzstan. Right. In most post-Soviet countries, you have a very light chance of being acquitted. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the origins of this conflict a little bit, because there is a a really interesting human drama here. Uh, Jan Bekov becomes president largely as the protege of Atambayev. So, I mean, in some ways, that's kind of the challenge that, you know, all of these post-Soviet oligarch-dominated political systems face, right, is how do you ensure succession in a way that's not going to jeopardize your own future? And we've seen a couple of examples in in different post-Soviet countries of uh, an old leader picking his, always his, um, successor and, and then handing over power in the expectation that he would be he and his family would be taken care of, uh, perhaps most prominently in Russia when when Boris Yeltsin handed over power, um, and that seemed to be the model that uh, Kyrgyzstan was trying to adopt or that Atambayev was trying to adopt, and yet here we are with uh, his handpicked successor Jan Bekov uh, arresting him and sending security forces to to seize him in his home. So why didn't this arranged transfer of power work? What led to the to the falling out between the two? I think the easiest um, answer is that it was a massive miscalculation on the part of Atambayev. He was perhaps, as he admitted himself, too naive to appoint Jean Bekov. But in a way, uh, it puzzles me why this would be, because there was always a possibility for Atambayev to not appoint anyone. And I think the only reason he To not appoint anyone, you mean anyone, to stay in power? To, uh, no, no, no. Uh, to leave his term as president and just let just elections... Have a fair election. Exactly. And, elections yeah. proceed uh, more spontaneously. But I think his, he hoped that by appointing Jim Bekov, he would have someone loyal in power, and he would continue to be a powerful voice voice in the country sort and behind the scenes behind the scenes and maybe also avoid some of the prosecute some of the charges uh, of corruption against him well Jim Bekov turned out to be a little more uh, shrewd than that and he does seem to to be the center of political scene in Kyrgyzstan and it's actually a very worrying trend that uh, on the one hand we do have an allegedly corrupt president former president and on the other hand we see those tendencies you know the cyclical development of an incumbent president trying to take all the controls in the country. And it's important, especially in light of parliamentary elections next year, when Jim Bekov will likely try to promote as many uh, of his supporters into parliament as possible. Yeah. So do the two, that is, Atambayev and, and Jim Bekov, have alternate sort of political structures. I know a lot of the the political struggles in Kyrgyzstan in the past have, you know, pitted groups from the north against the south. I mean, is there some of this geographic or sort of, you know, 
clan based <laughs> politics going on here, or is it much more just about I had ambitions? Several journalists approach me with exactly that same question, mm-hmm. and in a way, it gives you an impression of you know once you invoke those clan relations, it gives you an impression, a feeling that you understand the politics deeper in Kyrgyzstan because you now understand the real sources of you know center of gravity in Kyrgyzstan. But well, I, I should think... say clan. You know, I don't right. just mean in the kind of anthropological sense, but this is something that you see all Mm -hmm. around the former Soviet Union, where people have these regionally based power structures. Right. And I think uh, money is more important. Money and access to resources is more important. And then it's glossed over sometimes by the politicians themselves as uh, this uh, North, South, South, or whatever else uh, politics. But I think um, if you follow the money and opportunities, uh, resource sharing, I think it's mostly it's mostly that it's not really uh, north south division. I don't think it's really a factor in this latest spat. Mm-hmm. So the the patrons mm-hmm. or the clients rather of, of both Jan Bekov mm-hmm. and and Atambayev are more or less equally distributed around the country. Yeah, more or less equally distributed. Uh, it's of course politicians uh, typically promote to power people who tend to come either from north or uh, south. But it's not a clear-cut relationship, and it's really only invoked when the existing power structure and uh, resource distribution is challenged, and need, you know everything is up for grabs, and power relations are rearranged. Right, and it's where you know where do people look for the people in their network? You know, it's it's always based on some kind of ties, whether it's you grew up in the same town or you went to the same school or you know your families are. are connected through marriage or whatever it mm-hmm. is. Now, Kyrgyzstan has gone through a number of political upheavals uh, since it became independent. And um, at times, these have been not driven by, but there's certainly been an element of uh, outside involvement or at least interest in the in the outcome of, of those political struggles. Um, have we seen much of that this time? I mean, have has Russia or the United States or, or anybody else really, you know, taken a, a clear stand on, on one side or the other of this this dispute? <laughs> so both Jim Bekov and Adam Baev was in Wakes. They went to meet with Putin um, and <laughs> they produced pictures mm-hmm. standing together with Putin. Right. Putin, on his part, was extremely cryptic about <laughs> what he wants and how he sees uh, things unfolding in, in Kyrgyzstan. Medvedev recently uh, tweeted that Russia can't remain uninvolved in whatever is happening in Kyrgyzstan. That's a lot of negatives, even in Russia. <laughs> exactly. But it's really, um, I think the I think the um, easiest uh, assumption to make here is even though Putin may have had really close relations with Atambayev and Atambayev never shied away from showing his loyalty to Putin, I, I think for Putin it's just more rational to be in good uh, relations with the current president as opposed to the one who is probably going to be jailed. Right, yeah. I recall a couple months ago when Atambayev went to, to Moscow and he had a good meeting with, with Putin and then Putin said good things about him, but he said we support the legitimate government of Kyrgyzstan, which presumably means Jan mm-hmm. Bekov. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so Russia doesn't see its its interest being affected one way or another. I think, by... so 
Honestly, I don't care if it's if it's. I mean, it's it's really. I mean, Russia will find its way. It's a powerful country, and Russia has all the access to all the government agencies in, in Kyrgyzstan and all the intelligence in Kyrgyzstan. It's not a secret, even. But I think one way of looking at Kyrgyzstan's politics is that political dynamism can take place, whatever you know, however volatile or unpredictable or cyclical it is. It can take place even if the country is extremely pro-Russian, both the public and uh, presidents. The right. There, yes, there's still politics in the country. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've been talking about the politics in the country, but we've mostly been talking about it as the elite politics. Um, mm-hmm. In the past, when there's been these moments of political upheaval in 2005 and 2010, mm-hmm. there's been a, a very strong bottom-up grassroots uh, element to it. Um, so far, we haven't really seen that this time, but do we have a sense of kind of how this is playing among the public at large? I think um, aside from Russia and sometimes, you know, people ask about China, what, what does it mean for China? I think the most important takeaway is for um, neighboring countries and also um, civil society groups that see that in Kyrgyzstan, it's been almost a decade since the last change of violent change of regimes that the political landscape is open, it's dynamic. Activists can't debate on almost any issue, uh, provocatively so and freely. Um, So almost any issue meaning not really religion and not really interethnic relations. But, you know, all politicians um, are fair game. So uh, there is this grassroots element and the society seems to be very politically engaged, politically aware, always debating politics, acting on uh, their uh, conviction. So, you know, sometimes rallying in protests, sometimes speaking out publicly. But at the same time, this political openness and the strong grassroots element did not really lead to an election, uh, election of um, charismatic visionaries in Kyrgyzstan, or it didn't really, really result anywhere. Well, I mean, Ukraine is an inspiration to some activists in Kyrgyzstan, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, that we can talk about Ukraine separately, about what's happening there. But right. it is, and, and it remains to be seen whether exactly. Zelensky is charismatic. Well, he is charismatic. It remains right. to be seen right. whether right. he's right. a Exactly, exactly. But a lot, there are a lot of good wishers um, in Kyrgyzstan for his presidency. Or it didn't, re- didn't re- really result in stronger institutions. We still have, there is a lot of informal politics still going on. So I think activists in Kazakhstan, where we see this transition, now happening slowly, but taking place nevertheless, or in Uzbekistan. And I think develop, recent developments in Kyrgyzstan show that, is it really a choice between having an autocratic incumbent who cares about economic growth, maybe not equal, fair economic growth, but economic growth for the country, appoints technocrats into power, really crafts the message about political developments in, in the country for domestic audience and for international audiences, uh, but where you can't really criticize that autocrat. Or, that's been the Kazakh model for right, and it's now years. I think it's, it's an becoming Uzbe- the Uzbek, Uzbek model. model yes, yeah. or do you choose a, a you know an, a political uncertainty <laughs> where right yeah where you can you can speak out you can criticize but then again you know it's very volatile <laughs> yeah and well Kyrgyzstan in particular has been volatile I know a mm-hmm. lot of in the post Soviet region there's not a lot of open societies with free and fair democratic elections Kyrgyzstan is in some ways an outlier in that regard but you know there's Ukraine and and Georgia both with 
you know, some caveats. But, you know, Kyrgyzstan, what's been striking in addition to the fact that it's relatively open and pluralistic and, and democratic is just how volatile it's been. Mm-hmm. Not only in the sense that power has changed hands, but the power has changed hands often accompanied by pretty large scale <laughs> civil unrest. Yes. And again, um, there are cycles to that. It's almost like there is some learning that even though any any leader would want to grab power, would want to centralize power in his hands, there will be resistance, bottom-up resistance, be that organized civil society with NGOs leading the process. Usually it's a combination of various um mobilization patterns, or it's uh, members of urban middle class or newly urban middle class who will demand uh, better labor conditions and um, just more accountability. So yes, things still are, seems like they're still shaping up in general. Parliamentary elections next year would be a good opportunity to see how far has Kyrgyzstan come now that it's, there's also going to be um, third parliamentary elections since 2010. Mm-hmm. It usually takes several cycles to see whether elections are really free and competitive. And, and how do you think Jan Bekov is doing in terms of mobilizing a, a movement, whether just in general to support him or specifically for the for the parliamentary elections? Oh, I'm sure he is doing a lot to come up with a good list of uh, people. It, it's usually party lists are usually in combination of people who can definitely gain votes and rally people and they don't need to be coming from oligarchy. Background, mm-hmm. and and then also just people who have a, a high profile, in high a profile locale, right? High yeah. high profile, and then also meet quotas for women and ethnic minorities. But also um, elections are this period for fundraising and uh, having rich members of the public contribute money, hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes, to get a, a seat in the parliament. So I'm, I'm sure, Jim which Beckham, means parliamentary immunity, right? Right, right. So um, now all parties, and I'm sure Jim Beckoff in particular, are um, coming up with different lists of different combinations of people who can be um, who can be definitely elected in, in the parliament. But I think Jim Beckoff is just repeating all the mistakes that Atambayev made. He's not. He's engaging in this um, ambitious anti-corruption rally without reforming the judicial sector. Um, he is suppressing, there are signs that he is suppressing opposition media, and that's also very problematic. So he is just following similar cycles um, as his predecessors. And again, eventually, this may lead to this volatility we've just been talking about, mm-hmm. and that there will be a strong pushback from the grassroots. Yeah, but so far, we haven't really seen that. So far, we haven't seen that, but I think everyone, I think the majority of public in Kyrgyzstan is so disgusted cynical with both with cynical with both Atem, Atembaev and Jean Bekov. Yeah, I was going to say, have you seen public opinion polling that shows kind of where people come down on this on this conflict? I haven't seen public recent public opinion polling, and I know that some international organizations conduct such pollings, um, and then political parties themselves also. Uh, commission polling, like, pollings like that, but n- usually, usually it's a big problem mm-hmm. in pre-election um, period in Kyrgyzstan that they're all all are just estimates, and there isn't really reliable polling. Sometimes, you know, organizations like IRI 
International Republican Institute, they release polling results to the public, um, and they're really helpful. But they're helpful for political discussion. But overall, mostly are estimates or um, rumors. Mm-hmm. So not like quantitative data. On unfortunately, of- unfortunately not. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, so like we were talking about, Kyrgyzstan is one of at least three, maybe four, depending on whether or not the president of Turkmenistan is alive or not, um, but at least three countries in Central Asia that are going through periods of political transition right now. So in Kazakhstan, they've had the the managed succession. Um, it was a little bit volatile, but seems to have been you know, pulled off more or less successfully, um, at least as long as, as Nazarbayev continues to, to hang around in the background. In Uzbekistan, they had a, an unforeseen succession, um, but one that also seems to have quite, been... Quite foreseen. Well, foreseen in the, <laughs> in the macro sense, right, but right. the timing was <laughs> yeah. a little... The exact uh, timing yeah. was not... Yes. Um, exactly, yeah. But also one that was, you know, pulled off relatively smoothly, um, Mm -hmm. all things Mm -hmm. considered. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious, looking at these three countries, and we can talk about Turkmenistan too, if if you want, um, if there are any larger lessons here when it comes to presidential successions in these these kind of countries and what, uh, you know, Kyrgyzstan maybe uh, teaches us that can be useful in the other cases, or, you know, maybe what Kyrgyzstan uh, ought to be doing better. And whether this volatility that has accompanied the transition in in Kyrgyzstan is going to be used to suggest that Kyrgyzstan's model of of pluralistic politics doesn't work as well as some of the more controlled varieties. (laughs) So if there is anything to learn, and let me bring a little bit of Georgia here as well. I think um, for neighboring countries, once old leaders are no longer alive or in power, I think the important takeaway for activists especially to take into consideration is embracing uncertainty, that it's good to not know who will be elected. It's good to have many people with different types of profiles competing for power. Um, And I think it was a good part of uh, political openness for Kyrgyzstan that sometimes, especially parliamentary elections, look so unpredictable that political parties really try to at least um, begin elaborating their political agenda aside from just uh, giving away gifts and um, organizing big parties um, in various villages. Yeah. The one thing I'll add to that Mm -hmm. is part of the challenge in a lot of these countries is that there's not this political uncertainty, but there's also not – there is other kinds of uncertainty um, around things like property rights. So part of the reason that people in Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan want to have a managed transition is because they know that if somebody who is from a different power grouping becomes president, they may not be able to hold on to their assets. They may not be able to stay out of jail. They may not be able to stay in the country. Uh, and because you don't have those those institutions, um, it's really important to have predictability in terms of how the the transition and the succession works. I mean, Kyrgyzstan, I think, has done a better job on the institutionalization side, but it still suffers from some of these problems. And yet it has this open um, political system, and, and we see some of the volatility that ensues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, uh, as you point out, part of the reason why it's possible 
for it is happening in Kyrgyzstan and not happening, let's say, in Uzbekistan is because there are not no significant sources of big revenue in Kyrgyzstan, right. like oil or gas or um, you know even gold. Even that is not a big a significant source for any particular um, group in Kyrgyzstan. So nobody's controlling huge amounts of patronage. Exactly. Exactly. And Kazakhstan is somewhat different from that. So it will be interesting to see um, how those property rights will be defended or challenged in, in Kazakhstan because there is a lot more at stake. And then also Russia, of course. Um, yeah, that's right. another we interesting. We have really talking about Russia, but that's <laughs> – right. <laughs> the, the, the succession question in Russia is also looming right now. It, uh, apparently. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamics in Moscow. Uh, with all the protests. Uh, but I think landing somewhere between Kyrgyzstan's uh, never-ending, this perpetual political um, showdown versus having uh, somewhat similar to what Saakashvili did, uh, putting a, a huge emphasis on reforming the administrative state, but not exactly copying everything he, what he did, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously. Since he can't go back to the, Georgia right now. Exactly. Um, and it, at some point, he also became extremely authoritarian, of course. But having, uh, you know, trying to hold leaders early on accountable to institutional reform, um, not just to political freedoms and their just campaigns and the process of elections. I think it's uh, it's a it's a huge challenge, but that's something both politicians and activists need to take into account going forward. And I don't think any given post-Soviet state shows us that a political transition from this uh, very patrimonial authoritarian regime to somewhat decentralized system is always volatile. It might be. You know, there's always one step forward, two steps back, sort of dynamics. And right. I mean, these are all, Russia included, right. relatively new states. Exactly. And I, they have robust security institutions who are, who are made to be loyal to mm. incumbents. And those, uh, I think this inertia still exists. And it's very, it's extremely inconvenient for even democratically elected officials to dismantle those institutions. Sure. And it can be dangerous. These institutions control lots of resources, including the ability to use coercion. Exactly. Um, and you know, I don't think we have a lot of examples in the post-Soviet space of, of leaders coming in and really trying to disestablish them. Yeltsin in we Russia. don't have um, any, any examples. We have... Yeltsin. Yes, Yeltsin. Exactly. For And then what happened? Right. Yeah. And then, right, once he was no longer in power, they in some ways, took over and colonized the state. Right. And we we see small changes very uh, on a local level, on city level, mostly in large cities and capital areas where police are more accountable to the citizenry um, the, in their everyday work. But of course, the bigger um, security apparatus was mm -hmm. uh, prosecutors and interior ministers. Interior ministers, um, Oman, exactly all, all the special things. forces that yeah. were created to tame society in favor of political incumbents. They continue to replicate themselves, and it's a it's one of those toxic toxic legacies of the Soviet regime that really holds states back from even more political dynamism. Yes. Well, in, in fact, you have a book about this that just came out, right? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Last year. <laughs> well, so um, why don't we... Uh, okay. Why don't you give a little 
pitch for it, kind of sure. spinning off of that. So my book on mm-hmm. the politics of police reform in former Soviet states, and I specifically mention, say, post-Soviet states, knowing that it's a contentious term right now, because it's really, there. this is one area, the security structures and policing is one area where we see a lot of inertia from the Soviet regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which sense, it does make sense to call these post-Soviet. Like, exactly. This is something that they have in common, and it's something that's directly inherited from right. the right. Soviet Union. Exactly. There is still this colonial legacy that persists. And I, I just, I, my main puzzle is what does it take to dismantle this post-Soviet institution that is militarized and centralized and controlled, but really decentralized in its penetration in the society that performs a wide range of functions um, from protecting the regime to I know, issue, issuing IDs to distributing propaganda. So what does it take to dismantle it? And the, the um, answer is, the main argument is, it's, it will never come from political incum- incumbents, regime incumbents, not even um, democratically elected. Not even people like Saakashvili, who claims to have conducted the most revolutionary police reform and probably did in the post-Soviet countries. Right. Uh, but there is a fine line between reforming and refurbishing policing. Mm. Um, and the way I define police reform is that the way police apply violence against the population, the limits of this application of violence, um, is renegotiated between the society and uh, political incumbents and interior ministries. And there is really no way of doing that without strong society that will participate in uh, undoing some of these legacies and bringing this uh, non-state uh, civic view on what kind of police are needed in the mm. society. And we see this process of taking place, again, on a city level in Ukraine, in post-Sakashvili, Georgia, mm-hmm. um, in Kyrgyzstan, Moldova. But when once once there is a small renegotiation, then it's all you know. It's kind of all um, uh, again taken over by <laughs> Georgian advisors in Ukraine, <laughs> who hire right. a whole new police force <laughs> mm-hmm. and completely marginalize civil society groups in uh, in Ukraine, for instance. But the the very process of new uh, emergence of new venues of negotiations between the society and the state on policing is already a reform. And it's a never-ending process, mm-hmm. um, just like here in this country in the United States. There is always in renegotiations what kind of, how does police, how do police treat various uh, groups in, in, in the population? And right, now and this they, is a big political issue. In the uh, that's States. a big political issue, and it's never-ending. Society plays a big role in this process. Um, mm-hmm. And the venues are a lot more established in countries like United States compared to former Soviet space. But the dynamism of this process is very similar, I think. Mm-hmm. So are you optimistic that this process of, of reform will uh, proceed and that we'll actually see some some fundamental transformations in terms of the way that the, the course of apparatus is used in, in some of these states? Um, optimistic in a way that uh, the change will be quick? No, I'm not. And whenever change is quick, I don't think it's necessarily a reform. And again, this idea of hiring a whole new police force in, mm-hmm. in Ukraine, it wasn't really a reform. There's nothing easier than hiring a new labor force, a new force, compared to undo- 
ongoing uh, right there's patterns, the institutional structures institutional that they're going to be entering into and, and and really listening to the needs of the society but in terms of that police are not really free to act in whatever context is also i think it's also a misleading um, view of police because even now in moscow we see that compared to last last week so um so two weeks ago the the way the police really were beating up protesters this most recent uh, police conduct against uh, demonstrators against protesters was a little gentler and of course there were cases of them beating up protesters and really mm-hmm. putting many into uh, detention but it was a little gentler because i think there was a huge pushback uh, in the media and just parallel media circles, Mm -hmm. parallel to the official media, that this is too much and this just angers a lot more people and expands coalition of um, Of collective people who are disaffected who may... Exactly. Exactly. So even authoritarian countries, they know their limits. Yeah. Well, sometimes they do. I think Mm -hmm. if we want to go back to Ukraine, one of the Mm -hmm. reasons that the Yanukovych government fell was they didn't understand that limit. They didn't understand. And (laughs) this is the puzzle that (laughs) this is this particular dynamics of police escalating um, violence and then confronted with even greater backlash in urban setting, this this has been researched very well in social sciences. And it's not something that autocrats believe or understand. Um, so Yanukovych clearly did not think that uh, more people will come out uh, once he beat up students or once he started killing people. Same thing we see now in Kazakhstan, that they started very small, this protest started very small, but every mm-hmm. time the government tried to detain uh, activists, even more people came. And I think what this is what we see in Moscow now. Mm-hmm. especially in Moscow, that it backfires right. against the coercive state. Right. Know. And as we talked about in the last episode of the podcast, the big question here, here, Russia, is whether those protests will expand beyond Moscow. Um, and that's kind of the big unknown because Moscow is its own ecosystem. It is, yes. Well, it expanded to St. Petersburg at this point. Um but I th- also think that even if it doesn't, I mean, in Kazakhstan, it's really Astana and Almaty and a couple of other cities, and much on a much lower, smaller scale in other cities. But and the same in Ukraine to an extent, there were rallies um, in other cities, but not as powerful as in Kiev. Right. Well, yeah, and mm-hmm. again, I think Ukraine was a mm-hmm. somewhat anomalous case because of the level of violence that was involved. So if there is bodily harm in Moscow that is really severe and perceived as unjust, I think it will just be very difficult to tame those crowds. Yeah, no, I, I think yeah. if they have a real revolution in Moscow, that's... Mm-hmm. One thing, I think, you know, if you mm-hmm. have persistent protests mm-hmm. in Moscow that are confined to Moscow, right. that's something that the government can contain. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But they could also, as happened in Ukraine, I think, find themselves in a in a really revolutionary situation if they push that too hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they push that too hard, it's a very fine line that even authoritarian countries need to walk. I mean, I'm sure they just want to um, jail jail everyone or use some harsher methods yeah. against protesters. But it's uh, it, there is a real chance of uh, it 
backfire. Yeah. yeah. And, and we know in the, in the Ukrainian case that the Russians were urging the Ukrainian authorities to clamp down harder. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that it'd be interesting to see what Moscow learned from that experience. Um, and also, incidentally, what uh, the Chinese learned from that, because they're dealing with a very similar problem in Hong Kong right, right. now. Right. Exactly. And I think what's interesting also in Kiev and Moscow and maybe in Kazakhstan as well, beyond Nazarbayev, is when loyalists and you know different coalitions of oligarchs see what's happening on the streets and that it creates more and more anger, will they continue to support the incumbent or mm-hmm. will they try to sp- spin off, split off and do something on their own? So it creates... right. Uh, this the disagreement on the top as well right. at the top. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the, the more mm-hmm. coercion you you mm-hmm. employ, the more politically fraught it is, and the harder I think it is to keep the ruling coalition together. Exactly. And but the good thing about post-Soviet countries, unlike other post-colonial countries, is that the military will unlikely intervene. Right. Is largely able. A political against the population, and it's a huge thing. I mean, it's, it was a huge thing in Armenia mm-hmm. recently, in Kiev, and many other countries. Maybe with some exceptions right. of Uzbekistan at this point during Andijan. Mm-hmm. And this may be one of the big differences with China. Yes, uh, because when they're talking about what options does China mm-hmm. have for dealing with the Hong Kong protests, one of the things that comes up is that there's mm-hmm. a mili- there's a PLA garrison in Hong Kong. Right, it's a big difference from China. It's a big difference from Middle Eastern and, and African countries as well. Yeah. There was different colonial legacies. Yeah. Right. So as much as we hate the term, <laughs> post-Soviet space sometimes actually is a meaningful analytic category. Of course, unavoidably. Oh. Yeah. All right, Erica. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. All right. That is it for our show today. Thank you for joining. Uh, You can find a link to her recent book, The Politics of Police Reform, which you can purchase uh, at your local bookstore. Uh, For those of you who haven't, you should subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on either Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, Sign up, enjoy, uh, and spread the word. Um, And also, please send us more mailbag questions. We did a mailbag uh, session here recently, and we'll do another one again soon. You can email your questions to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian roulette in the subject line. Looking forward to hearing from you. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, and you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. And finally, of course, as always, big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes especially our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.